Hello and welcome to The Tally Ho, a podcast all about The Prisoner, with me Bex. And me, Eason. And this is the third in our series of interview podcasts celebrating the 50th anniversary of The Prisoner. Yeah, we'd like to thank everyone who's been listening so far and supporting the podcast. We've had uh, some nice comments on Twitter and Facebook about the episodes. And on our website, we've seen that people are tuning in, which is really nice. We recommend that if you're listening to the podcast, because we're putting out a new episode every day uh, this week, you might like to actually subscribe to the podcast itself. Uh, you can do that by going to the usual places like iTunes, Stitcher and TuneIn, or just going to our website where we have it all laid out. And you can actually subscribe to the podcast Time for Cakes and Ale, which is our main podcast, and that will give you access to all these prisoner episodes under the title The Tally Ho. Yeah, so today we're talking to Rob Fairclough, who's not only a huge prisoner fan, but has also written extensively about the show. Rob has got a tremendous backlog of uh, books, articles, things he's written all about classic TV, cult TV. And he's really well known in the prisoner community as well for producing two books that have been really important in terms of, I think, prisoner fandom itself. The first is the official companion to The Prisoner. And the second is actually a two-part series, which is the complete script books, volumes one and two, to The Prisoner, which both came out a few years back, but they are really fantastic additions to The Prisoner Library. We would preface this by saying that although they are really, really cool, um, they are now out of print. So you can still find them on like the second-hand market, um, and they're really worth tracking down. They're really fantastic. And we had a chat with Rob about his interest in The Prisoner, which goes back um, a while, sort of why he got involved in writing his books about The Prisoner, and also his thoughts about the 50th anniversary. Yep, so I hope you enjoy, and we'll see you on the other side. So we're joined now by Robert Fairclough, author of The Prisoner, the official companion to the classic TV series, and also the Prisoner script book. Uh, hello, Rob. Hello there, how are you? Um, very good, thank you for joining us. <laughs> no problem, <laughs> pleasure. So when did you first come across The Prisoner? Um, that's a good question. Um, um, there was a, I think it was 83, there was a late night uh, season it, um, of um, repeats on ITV called Best of British, I think. This is around the, if I can remember rightly, this is around the time of the Olympics. And I'd always heard, I'd always seen these articles about the prisoner and never really got it because there was like pictures of huge balloons and so on. I always, always wanted to give it a go. And um, so I stayed up you know, to watch it, because in those days, that was the only way you could watch vintage stuff, if you stayed up to watch it on a channel where it was repeated or something. And um, the episode was The Girl Who's Death, which is not the typical episode, but um, the thing that blew me away, really, from the get-go, was, was the title sequence, because I'd never seen anything like that before on a TV show, because it was, for a start, it was all film, mm. and the way it was shot and edited, um, I mean, I often say this about The Prisoner, it's like cinema for a small screen. It's shot like a movie, you know, and I, up to that point, I'd never been exposed to anything like that before. And I love the title sequence. Um, and thought, wow, this is this is really something exceptional. Um, equally, I love The Girl Who Was Death and still do. I mean, it's still one of my favourite episodes just because, OK, it's a spy spoof, but it's a very, very clever one. And again, it's just beautifully shot. 
um, and very funny as well, which a lot of the prison is very funny. Um, but it, weirdly enough, that, that tantalising scene at the end where the only bit of the real prisoner, if you like, is when number two turns off the screen and says, well, that didn't work or whatever it was. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, I've got to see the rest of this. And then I think I, I watched it to the first time when Channel 4 started up and they, they repeated it all. That was the first time I'd seen it all. But subsequent to the girl who was death, I, I tracked down um, the New English Library paperbacks because mm. um, you could get them through various dealers and stuff. And up until the repeats in 83, 4, well, that was my only exposure to the prison of those three books. <laughs> so but I sort of took to it immediately, you know. Sorry, long-winded answer, but... Uh... <laughs> That's great. It's It's been fascinating hearing everybody's different um, stories about how they actually first watched the show. Because we take it for granted now that someone tells you this is a great show and then you can just go, literally go online and find it. Or Netflix or whatever, yes. Yeah. Um, but everybody seems to have come to it at a, at a different time, on a, a different repeat or at a different point in their lives. And uh, mm-hmm. But... but it, the, the thing that they all have in common is that everyone immediately thinks, wow, what is this? Mm, so, absolutely. Do you think it's the, the the visuals that make it so remarkable to watch and immediately kind of arresting? Um, I think, well, yes, initially, I think. I think I think it depends on the time of your life you come to it. I mean, I was 17, 18. Um, obviously, at that time of your life, kind of trying to, you know, sort out what you want in life and you're trying to establish your own identity and I think obviously the prisoner would challenge with that completely you know because it's about a bloke trying to hang on to his identity when everyone wants to take it away but I think I mean if the reason it's worn so well I think to get back to your original point is the visuals I mean I, I, I mean I I think I'm right in saying there was nothing had been shot on location for that long, i.e. six weeks at that point, you know. And obviously some episodes had more Port Mirian in than some than others. Um, but just that whole idea of going somewhere, in for British television I'm talking about, not America necessarily, just going somewhere to shoot and use it as a location was completely new, you know. And, um, and to find somewhere like Port Mirian, which could be anywhere in the world, it was just it's stunning. I mean, uh, and also the way although none of this is in the scripts, the way the clothes were stylized, um, You know, okay, when he gets out, he goes back to 60s London, but even then it's very kind of, um, it could almost be now, I suppose. Mm. But the, the way, you know, the clothes are stylized, it's, I mean, if you take away from that, okay, the stripy jumpers, which are very 60s, I suppose. But really, it, it, it can be said at any time, you know, at any point. And uh, I think the foresight, and particularly... The foresight of um, the, the art director Jack Champagne was, was phenomenal. You know, and I, I, I mean, lots of um, TV shows at that time, particularly ITC ones, had art directors. But this is really something else. I mean, it's more like something. You know, I often say sometimes some of the designs look like they're influenced by Kubrick. You know, like you think of Doctor Strange Love and stuff, like the, the big war room. Nothing like that on television before. I mean, the sets. You know, they look, they're enormous for TV at the time. I mean, it's, it, it is quite, really quite remarkable how far ahead of its time it was. Probably explains why every man films went into bankruptcy, but they <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I, I guess the, the way that they used technology or kind of speculated on technology as well <laughs> does a similar thing. And yeah. that it's, it, it, it doesn't, when you watch it now, you, it doesn't look like the technology of the 60s. And no, yet it doesn't look like a 60s concept of how technology would be in the future. It's something completely different. 
Oh, completely. Yeah. I mean, if you think, I mean, again, you think of those massive wall screens, like where they, you know, it was so complicated to do because they had to shoot the footage first. Um, it wasn't sort of blue screen or anything, and it was actually shot live onto the back of the screen. I think. Um, I mean, that's just, you know, I mean, think of sixties, uh, as you say, technology. And if you say, for example, look at Doctor Who, it's all little monitors, isn't it, and stuff. I mean, a different kind of budget, obviously, but. But again, yes, I mean, the technology is very abstract, and particularly the rover balloon. I mean, no one really knows what that is. Is it organic? Is it synthetic or whatever? I mean, you know, the more... I think the interesting thing is the more one talks about it and goes through the various points, you actually think, my God, there's so much in this. I always say it's like the time it was made, it was like exactly the right point in the 60s before... It's sort of in between the swinging 60s becoming the cynical 60s, if you like, with Vietnam and all the rest of that going on. It's exactly the right cultural point for all that stuff. And as you say, technology, but you've also got medical experiments, brainwashing, all that kind of stuff. And popular psychology too. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the psychology in it is, um, particularly if you think about Fallout and the idea of number one being the, the bad side of number six, a lot of that's very Freudian, you know, kind of psychology, which was still quite popular as, as psychological theory at the time. So, I mean, it's really quite remarkable. Um, I mean, if you, I can't think of many things, but the, the thing I will say, you mentioned Twin Peaks earlier. Um, I think, you know, the prisoner really broke the ground for things like that and Legion and um, I'm trying to think of other examples. Um, Legion's pretty off the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, but the great thing about the prisoner, it, despite all the weird stuff, and I haven't seen the news between the people, so I don't know. It's like the kind of narrative through line is always very clear. No, no matter how weird it gets, you can get the point that they're trying to make, you know, which is, again, uh, you know, quite remarkable, I think. Yeah, we were thinking earlier about how remarkable it is with The Prisoner that aside from the first episode and the final two episodes, you could essentially take all the episodes in the middle and shuffle them around mm-hmm. and it would still make narrative sense and yet each individual episode makes perfect narrative sense in in itself mm-hmm. yeah i mean it, it's it's interesting i mean if you think of the comparative itc shows at the time like in a suitcase and, and um, the same you know they were designed to be shown in any order so if they were sold abroad and the, the tv companies got them and it just bunged them out it didn't really matter and i think and this is something that you know you guys probably know this is something that fans of the prison are very intrigued. I mean, they're always trying to work out the proper order. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think there is one. And I think the, the production reason for that is that, um, you know, it all changed as it went along. I mean, it, you know, I mean, Patrick Blessing was a great after the factor, but I mean, according to him, he planned it to be seven episodes, mm. which presumably is all the ones shot in Port Mirian up from. It's about five, I think. Then with um, Once Upon a Time, which was shot after The Charms of Ben, so it was shot like six, I think, and then the conclusion. Um, and again, it depends who you ask, because like Lou Grade always said, no, no, there was going to be 30 episodes. I mean, it's all very foggy. I think that's a trouble because there's no documentation. But knowing the way ITC worked, they would certainly want more than seven episodes at that time. I mean, the miniseries didn't really exist. So um, they compromised on 17, apparently. But you're dead right. You can shuffle them around, and um, it, it all still works. I mean, I remember one fan fiction writer had the idea that, you know, when the, every episode starts, it's a title sequence of him resigning. 
one fact, fiction writer had the idea that he was being brainwashed back to the beginning at the end of every episode. <laughs> <laughs> that explains all the consist- inconsistencies and continuities. So, but, I, you know, I don't think there was a real order. I mean, people, Alex Cox, actually, it's, it's out soon. He's just done a new book about the prisoner, and um, that's one of the things that obsesses him throughout. He's trying to work out the order, and you just think, well, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think it's really much point. I mean... You know, but that, and again, that's what makes it kind of like such a conundrum is trying all these kind of inconsistencies within it. You know, I mean, if it's, I mean, weirdly enough, the remake was very consistent. A very, everyone clearly followed the uh, one before, but um, then again, it was very dull. So. <laughs> <laughs> Nina Bean, I don't know why it was. It was just it's a wasted opportunity, really. But. Yeah, how do you feel about the the kind of more modern? reworkings reinterpretations of it so obviously you've got the remake you've got the audiobooks as well coming out i think it's great I, it, it, I mean it's like all these things i mean big finish do a great job with doctor who and they've done sapphire and steel and uh missing scripts the avengers i mean it, i think it's testament to the um enduring nature of the concept like all that stuff i mean if it inspires people that much you know the coral the kind of development of that is you'll get people wanting to write about it, do new adventures and so on. I mean, prisoner bands are very kind of, they're kind of quite tough on sort of like, you know, follow-ups really. They've been quite sort of harsh on the novels and there was a cuff on the novels, um, uh, The Prisoner's Dilemma and Miss Freedom, which were done a while ago, which were they were quite tough on. It's interesting what Big Finish was done with the, their version of Prisoner. They're not saying it's a sequel, they're not, they're not saying it's as it was, they're kind of saying it's a reimagining. And so it kind of gets you around the whole kind of resistance to maybe doing new stories if you like yeah i mean it just goes to show i mean and it's spun off into so many other things i mean you know like one, one thing to the matrix which could be basically a b and c you know it's like a guy being uploaded into a dreamscape um and it's influenced so many things and um it's, you know and again twin peaks i suppose the obvious kind of you know follow-ups to it small community but lots of weird stuff going on you know so how did you get into writing the official companion uh, well, quite, and this sounds, it's probably going to sound a little bit arrogant, but um, there have been quite a few books on The Prisoner. Uh, when, when did I start doing it? 1999, 2000, started researching it. been quite a few, and I'd always felt they were just all a bit lacking, really. They're, I mean, like I said earlier about it being so culturally right for that time, a lot of them could tell you about, you know, the kind of narrative ends of the story and so on, and, and some production details, but none of them had really nailed why it was so culturally important and why it fitted so well in the 60s. And that's kind of, that was kind of the main motivation for, for doing it. I mean, yeah, it does sound arrogant, but I just thought, well, I can do better than this, you know. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 what's the name? The French book was very good. I mean, again, at that point, in terms of, like, just visual detail and stuff, it was lovely. It was a lovely book. But, again, I don't think the kind of... Uh, it really nailed why it was so important, and so that's what I did. Uh, you presumably read the book, haven't you? Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's a chapter in there on ITC and why it was different to all the ITC stuff. There's a chapter on the cultural background, but it's got the production stuff as well. So I was trying to thought, well, you've got to have all that as well because people will, some people will be interested in this, some people be interested in that, mm-hmm. um, and it paid off. I mean, I mean, I was, a, well, I am a graphic designer, um, so Carlton. Uh, as was at the time I owned the rights and so when I pitched it I did a lovely kind of like very flash kind of proposal and said well I'll design it as well I'll do all the product I'll do all the picture research as well 
and um, I think they were really happy with that because the less work they had to do, the better, you know. <laughs> um, so that's that's what I did. I mean, it was my. I mean, I've worked on other stuff. I worked on a friend's book before um, on the Sweeney uh, called Fags, Flags, Flags and Jags. Uh, but that's probably, that was kind of independently published. But like the prison one was was my first book, and it was my first professionally published book. So I, I sort of I think it did quite well, really. <laughs> so I managed to convince them to do it. So. Mm. And how did the script books come about? Um, well, again, it's going to sound arrogant, but I mean, um, they've been various script books, um, Doctor Who, Star Wars, um, and I think I was always dissatisfied with them because obviously if they're printing the original script, you've got no idea how that related to what was actually sh- uh, transmitted. Um, and I wanted to do that. Um, I wanted to have the original script. And uh, the thing with the prisoners, so much was changed anyway, as they were shoot during shooting. I mean, from the original design of Rover, I think, the, if the memory serves me, particularly the last four, so much was different. I mean, if you, if you look through that, nearly every sort of sidebar with all the changes is chock full of like changes, you know. Um, and it was quite maddening to do, uh, going through the scripts, going through the episodes and trying, you know, almost line for line if stuff had been changed. But I thought the prison merited it because I think, you know, I mean, in short of doing it as an annotated thing on a, uh, what they call it, the text information at the bottom of an episode, I suppose you could do that. But then again, I thought, well, no, if these are reference books, they should, you could be able to turn to a page and look at scene whatever and be able to see all the changes, you know. Um, and, it, you know, it's just enthusiasm for doing it. And because there was only 17, I thought, well, it's possible to do this. I mean, it was going to originally be one book, but... Um, there was just so much that was changed that it became two in the end, you know. Mm. Um, and they, you know, they go for silly money on the internet. But, so. <laughs> Do you have a particular favourite episode of your own? Well, I obviously mentioned the girl who was death, which is hilarious. And I think I think the thing with that is, is you know, every, the, the great kind of rumour, I'm just, you know, is that oh well, you know, McGowan turned down James Bond or whatever. But I think you can see in that, particularly with his sense of humour, that it, it would have worked, you know playing that kind of mm. agent. Obviously, his relations with his lady co-stars is another matter. But um, So, yeah, Girl of Death is great. I, I, I love Fallout just because it's just so... It's just nuts. I mean, I have <laughs> that. And, and that comes from the whole thing of um, the deal made on The Prisoner at the beginning, just on a handshake with Lou Gray. And Lou Gray said, well, off you go. <laughs> go off and make... <laughs> always say it's... I can't imagine that happening now because... I, television just works so differently but then again and i haven't seen the last episode of the new twin peaks but i'm assured it's it's almost as mental as that you know (laughs) (laughs) it's an interesting comparison because there are so few as you say shows where someone gets given just complete creative control over what they're doing obviously lynch is obviously a major name so presume he'd be able to dictate his own conditions you know i suppose maybe they should do that more when the you know when the few times that it happens you end up getting something as iconic as the prisoner or as Twin Peaks. Mm. I mean, I think I mean, have you guys seen Legion as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's a good comparison because that's mm. that's pretty. Uh, I mean, it's it's very it's nuts and it's all about psychology and drugs and, and whatever. Mm. But for all the nut the, the kind of mad, visual madness going on, st- you can still follow the through line. You know, you still yeah. know what's going on. Um, and obviously, t- the way you assimilate television has changed so much. So I, I don't know, is, is Legion Netflix? I don't know if it is or not. But but it's an online service, isn't it? It's an online mm. TV provider. So pre- by that very 
because of that, you know, you could, you've got much more latitude now for doing that sort of thing that wouldn't necessarily be in prime time on BBC One, you know, although they did do, what's that thing with Tom Hardy? And, <laughs> that was that was pretty out there. To be? Yes. Oh, to I mean, be. You know, that was pretty nuts for like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but equally, I just think people's resistance to more esoteric stuff has kind of... I don't know why that is. I mean, just the way that people are now used to narratives that aren't so kind of explain everything, you know. And if you look, if you look at all the um, comments that came out after Fallout, it's all about well, you didn't tell us what you didn't tell us what was really going on, and that's the main complaint, mm. you know. But now people are kind of comfortable with like more esoteric things, you know. So obviously, you've been to Port Marion a few times. Yes, um, we visited as well. There's been a lot said about you know the importance of the prisoner to Port Marion in sort of attracting visitors and and keeping it alive. Yes, absolutely. Is it also does it also go the other way? So being being able to to physically go and visit a place where you feel like you are standing in the show itself mm. also helps keep the show alive in some way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I always say it's like you know it's like being able to go to Sunnydale, or it's like being, it's mm. being able to go to like sort of. St- the bridge of the Starship Enterprise or something. I mean, it, it, I remember the first time I went there, I mean, we had, you know, they show the episodes on the kind of internal TV station, which is like, mm. it's so meta, it's unbelievable. <laughs> I remember like watching one of them and there was, a, you, know, you could see the Campanile, the bell tower in one of them. And I was like looking out the window and seeing the Campanile, the bell tower. And I thought, this, is, this is amazing. Yeah. I mean, it, it depends who you ask um, about the amount of visitors they get, but somebody told me once like, this is a few years ago now, that they get like 100,000 visitors just who are interested in the prisoner, you know. But they're obviously not shy of um, the connection because we've got festival number six now, you know, which trades on the whole connection with it. And um, and a few, when I did my first book, um, one of the things I wanted to do, I'll just, this just come back to me, was get stories from all the, the extras and stuff. Hmm. And, um, we did a little day where we got them all in the town hall and showed them clips and stuff and I recorded it all you know, and that was kind of nice to do because no one had really heard their side of it before. And that's another side of the whole story, the fact that, you know, they were, remember, they were all so excited, but, you know, it's a glamorous film crew from London that was staying there for, like, six weeks or whatever. Some of them got quite starry-eyed about it, you know. And um, so that was that was quite nice to do. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, it, as I say, it's... I can't think of many other places connected with cult television or even television in general where you can actually go around. I mean, you can probably go to Ballykiss Angel or whatever, or, you know, I'm trying to think of other ones. Or like wherever Doc Martin's set or something. But there, there aren't many, are there? You know, and like, mm. you know, Portman is so distinctive. Yeah. No. And now, they've got, again, this is um, it's controversial, but they've actually got a permanent chessboard now on the kind of lawn. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I venture no opinion whatsoever. But, um, um, you know, no, it, it's amazing. And it's, a, it's just, just an amazing place anyway. It's just a wonderful place to go and stay, you know. And it's strange, I suppose, that... Um, so Port Marion, I think does feature in uh in one or maybe two episodes of danger man yes well. indeed that's right so so what are your so i you know, i thought i'd use that as a way to segue into that into that question that always comes up what's your view on the on the connection between uh danger man and uh well john drake and the prisoner um well again it depends who you ask um uh you know it it's um i mean we, I mean, we go and always said no it isn't you know but 
there's clearly I'll say, well, okay, if it isn't, why did you use a publicity shot from Danger Man in the title sequence being excellent? <laughs> um, obviously, not everyone would have known that. So. But that kind of sort of, the whole idea of the resignation sets up, well, you know, you're in this other series and now you're not. And you look, you dress exactly the same as John Drake as well. <laughs> sort of three-button Italian suit. But um, George Mark Stein, bless him, always said, no, it's absolutely John Drake, um, you know, who resigns and goes off to this place. And um, again, uh, Tony Sloman, who worked, he was a film librarian on it, says um, there was in the original kind of cold sheets for it or documentation, it said the character was called John Drake. Now, but I've never seen any evidence for that, so I don't know. Um, but the thing is, as well, if it was, if he had been called John Drake, I don't think it had worked in the same way because of the fact he hasn't got a name, mm. um, so, you know, kind of like immediately adds the whole more, another layer of kind of allegory and symbolism, you know, to it. The fact that no one ever finds out who he is is kind of the point that he's protecting his identity, you know, all the way through, and it's private. So if we'd known who he was, I always think it's rather strange that episode. Um, do not forsake me. You know, the fact when McGowan's actually not in it, you found out mm-hmm. most about the character. You know? <laughs> so maybe if he'd been around and seen the script, he'd said, no, we're not doing that because it, it gives too much away. And, you know, suddenly he's got a fiancé and stuff. I, I always thought, I kind of wonder about that. So but I suppose, given the circumstances, there's not much else they could have done, really. No, but, but the nice thing is, it's... If you want it to be John Drake, it can be John Drake. If you want to do that, because you can put that interpretation on it, and there's enough kind of visual hints in it anyway for it to, you know, like the, particularly the photos uh, uh, that they're using free for all, aren't they? As well, a John Drake publicity shot. It could be him, you know. And um, I think it, I'm right in saying some of the early press coverage of the shooting in Port Marion, it says, you know, John Drake is imprisoned in this village, you know, but that might be just the journalist making the connection, you know. So uh, structurally as well, it's it's really interesting that uh, they chose, even in a relatively short run, to have uh, different uh, actors playing the mm. character of number two. Mm. Mm. So, uh, I mean, to me, that's always one of the things that's quite striking. It, it really played around with the conventions that existed in you know in TV at the time. Yes. Um, do you have any sort of particular thoughts on not only? That aspect of the show, but you know whether you had any particular favourite number two in, uh, in the oh, prisoner. Well, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? Um, <laughs> I think the favourite number two is Lee McKernan, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, just because he's at all the crucial points, if you like, and I can't imagine many other actors, you know, being shot in a room with McGowan for like, you know, how long it took to shoot it, and matching him point for point in terms of acting. Um, Maybe Peter Wingard could have done it, you know. Um, but the other, th- and the interesting thing about the number twos as well, I think you had a lot of a lot of them weren't typical ITC actors. A few were, like Darren Nesbitt, um, uh, Patrick Cargill, who'd been in Man in a Suitcase, but you know, people like Mary Morris, Guy Dolman, um, Eric Portman. You know, they were, they were people you saw in ITC shows, really. And particularly Liam McKernan. I don't. I think I think the Prisoner's the only one he ever did. I can't. I don't think it was anything else. So that that kind of gives it another another edge. I mean, again, you know, Peter Wingard is marvellous. You know, maybe, and he's a guest at the thing in a couple of weeks' time. So it'd be interesting to what he has to say. But he's a he's quite a character. And he said when he when he went to shoot it, 
he said, oh, well, of course, I understood it immediately, you know, what Patrick was trying to do. And then one of the other stories, again, which I've never seen substantiated anywhere else, is, um, well, of course, I was going to be number two all the way through. You know, so, well, okay, you're right. All right. <laughs> but, yes, the number two thing is, um, but, it's, but, again, in narrative terms, it's the whole idea of, you know, the face of authority keeps changing. So, we, you know, like, in, like in the first one, he goes back to see number two and he's a different man. And that, it's almost like you can never get a grip on who who's in charge, you know, because it's like a civil service, I suppose. Every time you go and talk to someone, they're different. You, you refer to a different department. So, mm. you know. Um, and one of the reasons, um, I think it was a very deliberate policy, too, to try to get people like Mary Morris, because Patrick was interested in working with people who were, like, the, you know, very theatrically different and... You know, not the, you know, no disrespect to Darren Nesbitt, but you know, not the kind of a typical ITC actor, you know. I mean, you probably know the story. It was supposed to be, who was it supposed to be? Harry Andrews? Or, no, or Harry Andrews or Trevor Howard in um, Dance of the Dead, because it's written, the costume is written as um, Jack the Ripper. And obviously they changed it when Mary Morris came along. I think it works better with Peter Pan, because it suits the whole kind of fantasy angle better, you know. So. Obviously, it's quite unusual for a show to still be so popular that 50 years on, there are you know entire festivals celebrating its continued existence. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that we'll still be watching it in another 50 years' time? Is it is it that kind of such a cultural milestone in television? And, and the, the way that it seems like every generation can pick up and find something important that it has to say about society, about mm. about yourself really mm, i think so i mean some of us still be watching it i mean and again the way you know the way the internet and everything else has developed now is it'll all be it'll always be out there somewhere you know um yeah i think it will still entrance people i mean I, it was just a happy action and so many things like like the, the the production values the way it was shot very different for the time the fact it's basically you know the oh, who is it is it lewis greifer like who wrote the general always said he thought it was the pennies from heaven of its day, you know, which I think is a very good description because that was equally groundbreaking. And he said it was very, it was a bit similar to the Avengers in the visual stylization, but, and this is a crucial point, I think, the social comment made it special. And that's why you can, you can still go back to it, I think, you know, because that's, it's just a universal idea that the, the individual rebelling against, you know, like a repressive regime or whatever. But, you know, the way it's presented, it's not 984. It's like a very colourful place, and it's like, looks on me quite nice to stay there. But that's kind of... George Markstein always said it was like... Bless him, he, was, he, he had a deep suspicion of the welfare state, and he, he said that the village is basically the welfare state gone mad. You know, there's games to play, everyone's looked after, but you've got no autonomy. You've got no individual freedom. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like an onion, isn't it? The, you can peel away the layers, but there's always more and more underneath, I think, the prisoner. And I think that's why it'll always have that kind of like, it'll always get new audiences, it'll always get people coming to it, because it is, you know, this a bit like the old TV times, I never knew there was so much in it, you know. <laughs> and certainly I think uh, it's interesting when you talk to fellow prisoner fans as well, how um, everyone seems to have, uh, you know, often subtly different interpretations of of what they've seen, what they've experienced. It's really interesting that, you know, there are very few shows which have that impact where everyone really gets something different out of it sometimes. I mean, there are bits which, you know, everyone agrees on and there are other bits where, you know, the interpretations are are really interesting to tap into too. Mm. I think that's true. I mean, 
having you know, obviously I've thought about this a lot, but look, looking at Fallout and think I think from my perspective in you know 2017, looking at Fallout, I think it's very clear what's going on if you think about it. He becomes a, the headman of the village, I number one, <laughs> and he keeps meet number one, and it's him. So you know, okay, it's, it's very, it's very kind of. Um, the way it's done stylistically is very, you know, bizarre and surreal and whatever, but you get the point, don't you, you know? Mm. Um, and I do wonder, you say about interpretations, uh, I do wonder if it was on now, and you say it was a subscription thing like on Netflix or Amazon or whatever, the fact that, you know, it wasn't just on ITV when there were two channels, was it two channels? Maybe BBC Two had just started. If it, you know, hadn't been on a, if it was a modern show, or would it have caused a Ferrari? Would it have caused that much kind of like cause celeb, you know? Because um, if if you've got everybody in the country watching it, <laughs> pretty much, <laughs> you know, you're going to get letters to the Times. You're going to get sort of people phoning up on ATV and complaining, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean it, it, but as you say, I th the the ambiguity of it, it is wonderful because you can put sort of different interpretations on it. And, I mean, it's interesting the you guys have got the script books um the um anthony skeen ones that script the three scripts he did the, in the original version it's much it's very apparent that he thinks this whole thing is a dream mm -hmm. and a lot of the and particularly in a b and c i think a lot of those passages were cut just sort of because it was too kind of um probably they thought oh, no this is giving it too much kind of um giving the audience too much of a lead into where we might be going with it but yeah it could be a dream it could be a death dream because you know when he, he keels over in the apartment, you know, you know, there's, there's, and particularly because the, the way it ends, where suddenly he's not on an island, he's just down the A2 or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> drive home. Yeah, I mean, and then it starts again. Apparently, and as you guys probably know, the last shot, that's not in the script either. The fact that he's coming down the runway again in the car, that was the last minute thing. But it works so beautifully because it turns the whole thing into a kind of circle. Yeah. And, and circular imagery is, is very central to the prisoner. I suppose the idea being you're trapped in a circle and you can't get out. And it, that just all works so beautifully as well. But it was an accident. I think the other reason it became, maybe it's been so fascinates people is because of that. Because a lot of the decisions creatively were done on the hoof. They were done, you know, because something didn't work. And of course, when you're doing that, you're effectively make, not making up as you go along. But it's like you're not far off, you know. And that, that gives it a whole new layer of, oh, well, what were they trying to do here, you know? But, but in some cases, it was all they didn't know that I was trying to do. They, <laughs> they just did it because it felt right creatively. And that's, that's what McGurn always said. I think he was, um, he was very instinctive. If something looked right or felt right, they'd just do it. And they would all worry about it later and explain it. And, of course, they never did, like Rover or whatever. Mm. You know. One burning question we have. Um, <laughs> are your prisoner books going to come back into print, especially with sort of the 50th anniversary coming up? And a lot of renewed interest in the show. Mm. That's a very good question. Um, and um, I, yes, we did look into it, but um, unfortunately the way things are in terms of like, you know, just the way things are in terms of licensors and what people, the kind of fees uh, advances people want, it wasn't really practical to do it, unfortunately. Um, but that's not to say there won't be other prisoner books in the future um, because obviously a lot's happened since I wrote my original companion. You know, there's been the remake and stuff and, and now a lot more kind of fictional activity with things like Big Finish and stuff. So, you know, I would, I would just say watch this space. <laughs> so thank you, Rob, for joining us. It's been great talking to you about The Prisoner. Thank you. 
So obviously we've talked about the two prisoner books that you've had out, The Official Companion and also The Script Book. Mm-hmm. Are there any other kind of uh, TV-related books that people should look out for from you? Oh, that's very nice of you to ask. Um, and obviously the prisoner ones these days, are you know, you can get them on eBay and stuff. Uh, one thing I did do, which would be of interest to your listeners, is uh, The Prisoner Fat Files, which was a part work, which ran for 17 issues obviously and then it, it spun off into danger man so if you, you can find out you've got a wealth of information about both mm-hmm. um yes i've also done uh, books on sweeney uh, sweeney official companion with, with my good friend mike kenwood um which went into two editions the last one being in 2012 when the film we don't talk about came out um <laughs> Um, since then we've done Callan as well and um, I also write for various magazines I write for SFX um, uh, I write for Infinity which has recently started up just done something on Sapphire and Steel for them and I write for Doctor Who magazine um, on their special editions um, including the essential Doctor Who stuff so I've got and I've got various things cooking but um, can't really talk about that at the moment (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I also write for a uh, a website called We Are Cult, uh, run by a friend of mine called James Gent at wearecult.rocks. And that covers everything, like from books, um, comics, TV, film and music. So it, it's the one-stop shop for anything to do with um, anything cult. That's cool. So, uh, yeah, thank you again, Rob, for joining us. And uh, we hope you enjoy the 50th anniversary of The Prisoner too. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm, it's... Uh... It's going to be interesting, I think. And it's nice to know that, you know, people still think it's not enough of a cultural landmark to do something like they're doing in Port Mirian at the end of the month, you know. So uh, with that, we'll, uh, we'll sign off as only we can with uh, a prisoner episode by saying, be seeing you. Be seeing you. <laughs> We'd like to thank Rob Fairclough for joining us for our interview. It was really great to talk to him and it was really fun to find out about all his thoughts on the original series, how he got into writing the books, etc. And hopefully we'll have him on the podcast again soon. Yes, if you go to our website, we've got links to Rob's blog and information about some of the books that he's written and some of the other things that he writes about as well. As we said at the top of the episode, unfortunately, the official guide and the script books are out of print, but you can find copies floating around on the second-hand market. Yeah, and as it's the 50th anniversary, I think it's the ideal time to put some pressure on people to make sure these books finally come back into uh, print again, because I think they're a great reference for the Prisoner series. I think they're always going to be invaluable as well. So it'd be really nice to get to, to get those books back in print as well. So maybe there are some people who we can... Uh, harassed to make sure those books (laughs) uh, are once again back on the shelves because they're both fantastic yeah maybe some gentle nudging to uh whoever needs nudging to to make sure that that it can happen so that's it for today's special episode if you want to drop us a line with any comments you can find us on twitter at tfcaa or we've got a facebook page time for cakes and ale and website timeforcakesandale.com we'd love to hear from you and if you want to subscribe to the podcast, you can do that on iTunes, on podcast apps like Podcast Addict, Stitcher, TuneIn. Um, if you search for our main podcast, Time for Cakes and Ale, then you'll find 
not only all the Telly Ho episodes, but everything else as well. And you can just pick which ones you want to download. There's going to be a new Telly Ho every day this week celebrating the 50th anniversary. So look out for our next episode, which is coming up tomorrow. And also the last couple that we've done. Our first was with Fiona Moore, who's co-author of the Fallout Guide to the Prisoner. And our second was with Nick Griggs and In Meadows from Big Finish, all about the Prisoner audiobooks. So if you haven't listened to those, do go and seek them out. Um, they were really lovely to talk to. And in our next episode, we'll be talking to Rick Davey from The Unmutual. It was a really fun chat, and we hope you tune in to listen to that episode too. So for now, signing off. Be, be seeing, seeing you. you. Thank you.